Welcome back to the YI Network, where we interview every job occupation, A through Z, from the trash man to the CEO, so that you can find your dream job too. I'm your host, Kojo Thompson, and today we're going to be with Miss Eunice Hogan. She has been an immigration attorney for 13 years, and let's dive right in. Why, how and why did you start, uh, or how and why did you become an immigration lawyer? Hmm. All right, so... I became an immigration attorney in approximately 2006, and when I became a, when I um, was barred as an attorney in 1992, I still didn't know what type of attorney I wanted to be. Um, I ended up working for an insurance company, and um, I worked there worked for two different insurance companies, and ended up um, being in that environment for over 10 years. So in 2004, the insurance company that I was working for gave this big announcement saying that they were going to offer buyouts to most of house council all across the country. So it wasn't specific to our region and we could take it or not, but it was an indication that, that they were going to downsize. So since I'd been there for a bit and I was newly married, I uh, saw so I knew I wanted to take it, wasn't quite certain whether I should do it. Um, and I'm not some old-fashioned person that I needed my husband's permission, but we had just married. And so I talked to him about it, and he was like, go for it. And so um, by the end of 2004, I had taken out the buyout and then decided that I didn't want to just find another position with another insurance company or just do the same thing I've been doing that this was a time to reflect, a time to see what type of attorney should I really be? Because at that point, I had been practicing for over 15 years or more and sort of actually felt comfortable as an attorney, but didn't wasn't comfortable what I'd been doing prior to this, this buyout. So I decided I was going to talk to other attorneys, see what they did. And I realized that I was the type of person that needed to deal with people, deal personally with people, not hide behind some corporate shield or be in some house council unit way upstairs somewhere that I needed to be in the thick of things. But that, and, and of course the, the easiest way for that is to be a family law attorney. So I, I, uh, I ended up taking some some uh, continued legal education classes offered by our local bar association and realized that I could probably uh, do simple divorces without messing anything up and my clients would be happy. So it started out that way. While I was doing family law cases, I would sneak in a few personal injury cases because remember I had the, the the insurance background, but it just wasn't my thing. I didn't feel comfortable being on the other side of it. And I wasn't happy on the insurance side of it. In other words, I didn't want to be part of an insurance in any manner. Mm-hmm. But so one day I was in local courts and I saw a buddy of mine and he said, Eunice, what you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing family law now. And uh, he said, well, I haven't seen you in a while. I said, well, um, he, I said, well, my office isn't downtown. He said, where are you located? I said, well, my office is in the church education building. He said, the church education building? 
I said, yeah. I said, is that a problem? He said, uh, no. I said, uh, I said, well, you're afraid to go to church? I was just messing with him. So, so <laughs> I said, I said, look, I said, this hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with religion. I said, this was a place where I could, um, set up shop. Um, I would, you know, uh, and it's not, you know, affiliated with the church and it's just a place where I could hang up my shingle. So, when he came to visit my office, he said, Eunice, I see, you know, this is, you know, cool for you, but really I would like to see you in a more, you know, different professional setting. Uh, would you like to, um, you know, work out of my office? I said, well, you're, you're downtown. I said, I cannot afford downtown rents. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, he said, well, I, he said, I tell you what, if you can handle some of my cases for me, some of the litigation uh, for personal injury and a few other things, then we can barter and, um, you know, basically, you know, you can have a space within my office and still hang out you know, your shingle from my office and we can share space at the same time. I said, okay, that's pretty cool. So it worked out well. And um, eventually I realized he was doing more than just personal injury. He was doing some immigration. And when he showed me some of the immigration cases he had, which were pretty simple, like fiancé visas and adjustment of status, which means adjustment of status is when you get your green card inside of the country as opposed to consular processing. Mm-hmm. He, uh, I said, uh, well, can I help you with this? And he said, yeah. I said, I'll do this for free. I said, I want to learn. Mm-hmm. So well, that's what I started helping him with the form work, um, meeting with some of his clients and and I realized that this was the thing sort of that I've always been looking for, something where I'm hands-on, something where I can really feel like I'm making a difference, where I'm really helping somebody immediately and I can feel the, the give and take right away. So I, I was just so happy to finally found something all these years within the confines of the legal system that I really liked. So of course I started, still started, started, I was still doing my family law, still doing a little teeny bit of personal injury, uh, doing the litigation for the other attorney. But then I started getting some more cases, more and more cases. I went to, uh, the Alien Immigration Lawyers Association to, uh, to their website, joined that organization, went to some conferences to learn some fundamentals because when I went to law school, and I won't name the law school, but when I went to law school in Virginia, um, the the school is very conservative, and they didn't even have an immigration uh, law class. I don't even know if I knew about immigration law, and and so I was like, wow, all this is out here for me, and so um, we start. I started um, <clears throat> taking more and more uh, cases. My cases became more and more complicated. All of a sudden. Um, people found me some kind of way because I wasn't advertising and actually I still don't. And, um, I guess maybe I helped one person, then the other person said, well, you should call Miss Hogan and it went like that. So after a while though, it, the other attorney that I was working with, I think he wanted me to primarily work for him. And I felt like that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to work for myself. And I still wanted to maintain our friendship. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want there to be a conflict between us. 
because we've been friends for a really long time. You know, I get along with him. I get along with his wife. He gets along with me. He gets along with my husband. I didn't want us to break up a friendship because of some work. Okay. So in the end, I ended up finding a little space um, in uh, Greenbelt. But that my clients, they come into the office. They know that they can reach me. They know that they can call me. Uh, a lot of times I'm on my personal phone. They know that they sort of know when I'm in and they know when I'm not in. <laughs> and they say, but they know that I care a hundred percent. They know that, uh, when the case doesn't go the way they want it to or that I want it to go to that uh, the way that I want it to go, that we're, we're both upset. They know that I've given my, my all for each one of my cases and that makes it hard sometimes for me to maintain the professionalism and and not get too attached but it's one of the reasons why I do this and family law is because I don't mind the attachment some attorneys don't want the attachments they just want the money oh and sometimes it's not even about the money they just don't want the attachment and but I can't function well without the attachment um, I've made a choice at this point to care about the client, have the ca- client care about me in a professional manner. And yeah, I know sometimes some of my clients probably think I'm their auntie. It's okay. I don't, I, that doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't bother me. Um, I just want my clients to know that I am there for them. And I get so much out of that. Even when clients get angry with me, even when clients, when we have a conflict, at least I know uh, they cared enough to share how they feel and they have the opportunity to do it. There's so many attorneys that you can't reach them by phone. Mm -hmm. You can't reach them by email or text. Uh, As an attorney, sometimes I have a hard time reaching other attorneys. Mm -hmm. So that's how I, I sort of got became an immigration attorney which means i I went through the back door yeah that's okay so you covered a lot uh in that question but one question i wanted to ask is like specifically just like roughly uh tell me how long it took for you to realize that okay it was specifically immigration lawyer that i wanted to do not just uh the umbrella Mm -hmm. well it really was just a matter of probably a few days of touching those forms when I worked for the other attorney and then meeting the clients and realizing this is something that I would love to do. I've always been a person that loved to travel. I love other people's cultures. I care about other people's cultures. I'm from, I'm from a southern place, Norfolk, Virginia. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a military town. So you, there's people in and out, and, you know, but at the same time, it's primarily, especially the time I was growing, up there, which was the 60s and, and 70s, uh, that um, in a little bit of the 80s uh, when I was in, in college, that it was, you know, still just black and white. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, they didn't integrate the schools until 1971. So I didn't go to a, a school that was integrated black and white until my third grade. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, so... It was, you know, a bit backwards, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but at the same time, that never bothered me. And my mom's a retired librarian, so, you know, she always encouraged reading and talking about everything and and, and, and encouraged me to, to think about other people 
other people care about other people and other people's cultures. I mean, she didn't, um, you know, we didn't speak another language in the house, but, but I always knew that, you know, it wasn't foreboden for us to, to, to think outside of the box, outside of what was just happening in our little teen neighborhood, you know? And I think, uh, you know, I think that, that, that helped me realize how important other cultures were. And then when I, my first year at, um, at college, uh, in Virginia, um, um, one of my best friends, um, was, uh, not born here in the U.S. She was born in, um, let me get this right. She was born in Taiwan and she didn't become a citizen until maybe until she was about, I don't know. I don't know when she became a citizen, but she's a citizen. And, but she, she came here as a little girl. And, and her, her first language was Mandarin. Her second language is English. She spoke perfect English. Um, she's a medical doctor now, but we became best friends. And so just meeting her and having her as a friend, um, made, uh, made me understand that there are many more cultures out there that I hadn't been introduced to and, and, and many, uh, ways of, um, you know, expressing oneself, uh, uh, Dressing in different ways, uh, eating different foods, uh, uh, having different religions, uh, things that I didn't uh, necessarily see in Norfolk, Virginia, but I saw when I, uh, I went to, to college. And so that was pretty cool. That, I, I was like, wow, this is neat mm-hmm. uh, to, to meet so many uh, different people in one place. And um, so I guess I had that need. And didn't know it. And so, uh, when, when I had the opportunity to actually prepare papers and help people come to this country or stay in this country legally, I was like, this was made for me. Mm-hmm. So that's how we got there. Uh, good, but what's in, what is an average day like for you as an immigration attorney? Hmm. Well, as an immigration attorney, um, the average day can be really quiet. Some days and then crazy the next day. So like today is a quiet day. Today I'm working on um, a motion to reopen someone's case. They have a prior deportation. I'm hoping that the things that have occurred in this person's life over the years are such that I can convince a judge to reopen that case and now tell them that tell that judge what that person is, what type of relief is available to that person. So today is one where I write, but then. A few, uh, last week, I went to immigration court. So a court day may be, uh, that I, uh, for a master calendar, I get up in the really early because usually the courts open and start around 8 a.m. And then you get there and then they call the name of the person and the last three digits of their, um, A number, which is an alien ID number. We go before, if it's a master calendar, we go for the judge. I uh, let the judge know that I've received the notice to appear or I did not. Notice to appear is think of it like a charging document. We admit the allegations or deny the allegations. We advise the court of what type of relief is available. And if some days everything's cool and we've been working for months, maybe even before the court date, I have the application prepared, whatever the application is, mm-hmm. asylum, K-1, 
cancellation removal. There's different forms of relief available. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get a court date, which will be the individual court date, which might be many months down the road. And so, and so for months and months and months and months, I'm just sort of waiting. Then there may be other days, um, before, uh, that I have someone, maybe two or three or four people, like on Saturday, I might have, um, I'm always in here one Saturday at the month, like last Saturday. Uh, we had about eight people come in and out and there's, it's always a different situation with each person that comes to the door. I never know exactly what I'm going to see. Um, there might be that person that has an old deportation order that's hoping that I can reopen the case and change their situation. There may be that person who's in deportation right now, and they're hoping that I can find a law that would help them stay here. There may be this person who doesn't have any immigration issues except that they just want to bring their fiancé over here or bring their child over here. I sort of love those. Mm-hmm. Because those make me happy that I'm bringing, I'm reuniting families and bringing people together. They make me extremely happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that's just sort of more form work than having to, to go to court. Mm-hmm. So those are the different types of situations. Um, or there may be that case where it looks like it's easy on its face and then you find out something like, ah, somebody's got this prior conviction mm-hmm. that might change everything for them. Mm-hmm. And then I have to figure out, well, can I work with a criminal law attorney who might be able to get that overturned? Mm-hmm. So then I have to work hand in hand with someone else. Mm-hmm. So those are the challenges that you might find during the day mm-hmm. with immigration. Um, and um, sometimes it's, it's quite satisfying because you know that you're really going to be able to help this person change their life. And then sometimes you're not quite certain what's going to happen. I have a, a case that came in recently, and it's uh, it was uh, it took me aback because it's a client's child that came in um, unaccompanied, and the child is seven years old, and she wants me to represent her seven-year-old child in in deportation proceedings. When she told me how old her baby was and that the child had been detained for three weeks before she was able to get the child. I almost cried. I said, what the hell is going on here that I have to represent a baby in deportation? And, and I have to admit, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do this. I am going to do it. I'm going to figure something out. But I never would have thought that I would be going to court with a a, a child. Mm-hmm. But that's the type of world we're living in right now. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let me let me piggyback right off of that. Uh, sure. What are some of the things you enjoy the least? That sounded like something you really that really gets you down. But what's what what else kind of you know makes you takes you away from uh, really putting your passion into being an immigration attorney? Or not really, you know, takes you away, but. Makes it harder. Yeah, it makes it harder. Right now, the politics makes it harder. Okay. Yeah, the politics makes this very difficult uh, because uh, some of the decisions that are being made are political as opposed to, you know, we have a problem. Let's see how we can fix it. Instead, it's we have a problem. Let's make it worse. 
Um, so there, you know, there's a backlog at, at, in, in, at almost every immigration court system here. And so, yeah, there are more judges, but they're giving, they're taking away the powers of the judge. So the judges are able to make fewer and fewer administrative decisions. And so even though uh, the powers that be think, think that they're, they're, they're going to move the system along by putting more judges in, if the judges don't have discretion, you still have a backlog. Um, prime example of um, politics that didn't make any sense was uh, in what, December, January when we had the shutdown. So, so immigration court was shut down for all but the criminal cases, a detained docket. I didn't have any detained clients. I do occasionally. And so, but I had three trials that were scheduled during that month. Two of them being individual trials, which means the last trial. And yet we weren't able to be heard because of the, the shutdown. And here it is, we're, we're at the end of May, and we still haven't been rescheduled because of the backlog. So we have, you know, we have someone in charge of this country, allegedly, who you know, thinks, you know, I've got to get my wall, I've got to get this, I've got to do this, I've got to keep people out. Well, he had an opportunity not to keep anybody out, but to have the process go forward in January. But instead, he backlogged. Uh, the, the docket even further. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, so it's the politics right now that's, is making it a real challenge. And in fact, the politics is making it so uncomfortable for, uh, many, uh, people, uh, in my profession, immigration attorneys on both sides, immigration attorneys for the government, immigration attorneys for the client, for the, for the immigrant, that a lot of people are feeling like, I don't want to do this right now. And no, people aren't just like all of a sudden just bailing. But what I'm saying is that you, when you go to immigration court, you're seeing different government attorneys. And then you find out what happened to X, what happened to Y. They're not being fired. They're thinking, I can use my skills somewhere else and not be treated this way. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps I don't want to represent a government that's holding babies. Mm-hmm. And so we've lost a few good government attorneys. And I don't mean good because they did things my way. I mean just fair, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and um, and I think we may even be losing some good judges because um, of some of the decisions that have been made um, um, in the upper regions of the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I'm not going to name any judges that might be believing because of those reasons, but it, it can't be a coincidence that some of the judges that we've had for a very long time are now choosing to. Um, go elsewhere sure. and use their skills elsewhere because, you know, we, we need those type of, we need the fair judges. And I'm not saying the new judges aren't fair. They are. Mm-hmm. But you need the more experienced judges to train exactly. the younger judges, exactly. right? Yeah. And if we're, we're losing that, you know, historical base, what's, what's happening with the system? It's, yeah. it's breaking down. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's because of the politics. Mm. And there's no other reason. It's not because the docket is any heavier. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's yeah. always been heavy. It's not because the docket is any more emotional or less emotional. It's always been emotional. Judges are making hard decisions about whether someone stays or go. 
But the politics can make you, you know, like any job, politics can be good politics on the job or bad politics on the job. Well, the politics that we have in this country are affecting people's jobs and lives. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. That's 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 obviously a strong point. What do you enjoy the most? Like I indicated, where where we get that win, where we get that win that I th- that when we when I first met the client, maybe it was something that I saw maybe in a transcript where there was one little thing that the judge said or didn't say, mm-hmm. or the government said or didn't say, and I said to myself, ah, I think that's an opening. Now I have something that I can use to reopen the case. And, and, and that's not, not necessarily something where they made the error in, in front of me. Mm-hmm. I have had cases where people come to me where they have had cases closed for years. Mm-hmm. And they'll come to me and then they'll say, Ms. Hogan, can you reopen? Can you whatever? And I'll say, let me look at the case. Let me do some background. Let me read the transcript and I'll see something. And I was like, I, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. Mm. And then I have my opening. I mean, I have a client now who's a citizen because of that. Mm. I mean, they went from having an order of deportation for over, for many years, reporting to ICE, living their life in limbo for years to some kind of way they got my name through somebody. And, and I read this transcript and I, and I filed the motion to reopen and then we appealed at the, the, you know, um, we asked for it to be reopened. We went to the Board of Immigration Appeals. The, they, they granted the reopening. We put it back before the same judge. And, and then the relief that we asked for was granted. And that person's life has completely changed now. And, you know, he, he feels grateful, but I feel grateful. It's not just, you know, him having to thank me every minute because I just say, that's, you know, I was able to, like change this guy's trajectory, mm-hmm. you know, and and then it's like and it's just it's just this wonderful feeling. Um, I have this little wood carving behind me that says Haiti that a client just sent me. This is a longtime client who she just went in consular process and came back with her green card, and she had been here many, 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 many years in sort of an in between state, and we gradually were able to follow the papers that we needed to get her to the point where she felt comfortable being able to go home and get her consular process and come back in. And even when she went the consular process, she was afraid. She was afraid that they would deny her. And I said, look, I can't make any promises. I said, but I've done everything I can. Found everything I can right here to make it so that when you go home, you'll be able to come back. And she, and she's here. And, and I just like, I feel like this, this, when you can, when you can do that, it just makes you feel so cool. And I, I put myself in their shoes. Would I like to be in XYZ country where uh, the language that I speak is not necessarily the language they speak? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm in the court system. The language that the country that I'm from is in a mess, some kind of way, whether it's gang violence or, you know, it was war torn or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had to rely upon someone that I didn't really know to help me go through this legal process. 
how would I like to be treated? And I would hope that somebody cared about me mm-hmm. and cared about my little family if I had a little family. Mm-hmm. I, I would pray that I would have somebody that didn't just care about the money. You know, money is good, money is necessary, but it's not always about the money. And, uh, and I guess that's one of the reasons why I enjoy this so much now. I enjoy my little practice because I can make decisions. I can make decisions about how much or how little that I want to charge. I can, I can take my wood carving and not know that I'm not being bribed. Cause you know, when you work for the insurance company, if you get anything over $25, you have to, you know, they have to tell your supervisor and then they have to approve whether you can have it. I'm like, they just want to give me a bunch of flowers, you know? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, um, you know, I love, I love this little practice. I absolutely love it. And I'm so happy that I, I found it. My mom, um, right, tells me that I, I remind her of this book, um, uh, Leo the Late Bloomer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and since I am about to turn 56, I guess I am a late bloomer. But I'm glad that I, I found this practice and that it found me mm-hmm. and that I'm there to help others. Uh, it's very emotional. Uh, I, I would say that I probably cry over something at least once a week. And it's not always sad tears. It's sometimes I just need to get it out. <laughs> a, client, a young male client right now who's in a good status as far as where his case is going. And he's learning to become a mechanic. And so his mom was showing me pictures the other day with him fixing the car and looking like he knew exactly what he was doing. I was like, all right, now. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that make me happy. Okay, so... Do you think that grades mattered in school for the success in your career? I think grades matter to a certain extent. And in, in, in other words, I think that you should do the best that you can and try to find the courses that you really, really enjoy. But grades don't always reflect your ability. Mm-hmm. I was not the best student in law school. I was absolutely not the best law uh, student. I really hated every minute of law school. Wow. I did. And it's because when I look back on it, I went to the wrong type of law school. I went to a really, really conservative law school, and all they wanted to do was produce lawyers who worked in corporate settings or law firms. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize what I wanted or what I didn't want. I needed a law school probably in a bigger city. And where they had all, I, I probably would have really thrived if I'd been in a setting where there was lots of legal clinics, where I could go out into the community and help yeah. and do something mm-hmm. and get a lot of feedback mm-hmm. instead of just being in classroom. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what I needed at 18. You know, sorry, what, I was 22, okay. 22 to 25. I didn't know. Um, I just knew that, you know, sort of a, uh, I was going to law school because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I got in and so I went. And that was the wrong reason to do anything. Yeah. Um, so my grades in law school don't reflect anything. If you looked at my grades and, and thought about anything, you'd probably say, well, she probably might not ever become an attorney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe she shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> but my grades didn't reflect the things that were inside of me mm-hmm. and that passion that I have for people because that school didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And it's an excellent school. I'll never put it down. 
And um, it's just that it wasn't the place that I should have been. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you you hit, you missed a lot of really good points. Our podcast is for 17 through 25-year-olds who are actually trying to find that right fit and the right, you know, balance for themselves. Um, but let me go ahead and uh, close this one out. So you said, so there again, there are a lot of 17 through 25-year-olds listening to this. And they're really looking for something uh, for themselves. But I'm I'm speaking specifically to the people who want to be an attorney or an immigration attorney. Hmm. Um, what is one piece of advice that you could give them mm-hmm. that would really? Well, if you want to become an immigration attorney, you have to care about others. You have to care about other people's cultures, other people's languages. If you can take another language. Um, when I was in school in the seventies. French was the big second language. It's not a big second language anymore. Now it's, you know, Spanish and Chinese and things like that. But you take what you care about. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be afraid when you go to college, or even if you're in some really cool high school, take classes that you think are not necessarily your fit. Don't be afraid to take the home ec class, the, um, I don't know what, uh, you know, or the culinary class. Don't be afraid to take the Votech class, you know, uh, go ahead and take it because all of a sudden you might find this your passion. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, you know, don't worry about your gender and say, well, only the girls are taking this class and only guys are taking this class. Um, when I was in college, I took, I really experimented and took different classes. I didn't experiment in my life, but I took different classes. I took an anthropological class. I took Italian for a semester. Uh, and that opened up my world to different cultures. So opening up your world to different cultures and traveling, if you can. And if you can't travel, read about it. I never had any extra money in college. I worked part-time the whole time I was in school. and I was on scholarship, financial aid, so I never got to travel. But I traveled in my mind, in my books. So don't be afraid to take the extra courses. Don't be afraid to talk to people um, um, and read. Read read the newspapers. Uh, ask questions. A good lawyer always asks questions. Uh, a good lawyer always is open to other people's interpretations of things. Don't have a closed mind about your life or uh, the people in your world. And and this is funny coming from me because everybody says I'm a very stubborn person, and I am. I'm about one of the most stubborn people you meet. But at the same time, over, over my lifetime, I found that even if I'm stuck in some position, I should still listen to somebody else's position. Mm-hmm. And a good lawyer all, always has to listen to the other side and, and then balance what's right and what's wrong. And, um, and even with immigration. And, and, and then, you know, in the end, you know, the, uh, the other things will, will come. That is, if you have that, that basic kernel of passion about it, then you'll have the interest and the tenacity to take the classes and get through the hard law school and get through the hard law exams and get through that hard bar exam because you know, in the end, you know exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. Law school was harder for me because I didn't know what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I was just reaching for something, but I had no idea what was, was on the other side. If you have an idea on the other side, it makes it easier. So for those people who are in that in-between stage, you sort of need to broaden that net and say, I'll take the class in this. I'll take the class in that. I'll take the class in this. 
So hopefully amongst your, you know, you broadening your horizons, you, you walk upon something along the way. So don't be afraid to take that odd quirky class and talk to that odd quirky person because you never know where they may um, lead you. Think about the people that I met along the way who said, Eunice, Eunice, why are you doing this? How about this? And I said, okay, you know, or work for free for a while and then end up finding my passion. Okay, well, that was a great interview, Miss Hogan. Thank you very much. That's that's all we have uh, for today. Oh, thank you very much.